And I remembered seeing History of the World Part 1 when I was about nine and, like, really loving the film. Like, you know, I'd seen all of Mel Brooks' stuff and I loved all of it, including History of the World Part 1. And as we were watching it, I, I was just like, what about this did I like when I was nine? I don't understand. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. This week we continue our look at Record of Lotus War, part of our series of sword and sorcery shows that influenced or were influenced by Dungeons and Dragons. I tried to run a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, a one player thing just for me and my son. And I tried setting it up by warning him, Part of the mechanic of this campaign is that you're going to die several times, but don't get upset. It's part of it. It'll be fine. Like, your character's not actually dead. And, and like, I had to tell him this in advance because, like, I knew he was going to get all worked up when he got down to, like, three hit points. I'm like, don't worry. It's going to be fine. And I built a campaign. It begins in media race. He is in, like, a gladiatorial fight. And all you can see is that there's some, like, lofty evil female character possibly a witch you don't really know you can't see up that high but like some strikingly beautiful and fierce and stern character who's watching this gladiatorial battle and she tells you you have to fight to the death and whoever wins will be freed classic gladiatorial setup and then what happens is you engage in this gladiatorial battle and when you die you wake up again at the beginning and it's like, hey, you're a gladiator. You're going to fight to the death. So it's a time loop like Groundhog Day. Yes, like Groundhog Day. So I set up a Groundhog Day like battle royale scenario. And I had him do a sort of a wisdom check at the beginning of every turn. And if he rolled a 19 or a 20, then he would learn something like significant that would help him figure out what was going on. And if he rolled a one or a two, he would like double down and recommit to the illusion. <laughs> and um, eventually you find out that it's a Lamia, which is like picture a centaur, but with like lion bottom and hot lady on top. And that she's created this Again, whole... <laughs> this is your son that we're talking about here. Anyway... It was a failure. He got very frustrated. Like, it was one of these things where I was, like, maybe trying to impose a parenting lesson on the DoD campaign, which was the only way to get out of it was to cooperate with everybody else in the arena instead of trying to kill them. And then they would help you defeat the Lamia. But that, uh, anyway, abject oh, failure. God, he no got, wonder. <laughs> he got super <laughs> frustrated. Like, some of it was, like, the other people in the arena with you, there was a half-red dragon, and if you asked the dragon the right questions, or, like, you figured out, like, oh, he must be here for the tre for treasure, because that's what dragons care about. Oh, there must be a treasure somewhere around here. And there is! That's what the Lamia is guarding. And then one of the other characters was a were-tiger, who's there for the glory of, like, defeating the Lamia. And... And then there was a manticore who actually, like, belongs to the Lamia and is legitimately there to kill you. Don't try to cooperate with the manticore. But anyway. That's that's hilarious because yesterday's game, they were trying to cooperate with a manticore. What? Yeah, yesterday's game, I was running. There was a manticore 
but I don't want to get into that. But what I will say is that if you've never played Planescape Torment, many people consider it one of the best video games ever made. It came out in around 1998, and it is based on Dungeons & Dragons setting Planescape I think Memento ripped it off. So basically you play this character who wakes up in a morgue and you've got tattooed notes all over your body mm. and you're trying to figure out what your story is. You have no memory. And every time you die, you end up back in the, mm. the morgue and have to start over again. If you've never played it, it is really excellent. It, I'm told, I haven't played it in a while, but I'm told it still holds up. Here we are in 2023, and this game came out in the, the 90s. You know? hmm. Enough about that. I think we need to jump into talking about Record of Lotus War. This comes out in the U.S. in 1990, and the first episode, we get sort of the backstory at the beginning. So there's this goddess of light, Phallus, and this goddess of darkness, Phalaris, and they have this massive war in the end there's only two people left marfa the good mother earth sort of goddess and cardis the evil goddess marfa ultimately defeats cardis but cardis makes her last stand on this island and infects the land with this evil curse and that's why it has all these monsters and things like that and that land is lodos or the accursed island or the accursed land now as the series got popular and went on lotus eventually becomes like the main continent then the story sort of gets transferred to a smaller island called marmo in other words like the island becomes the mainland and then that the, has another island and i think part of this is just because the way the japanese conceptualize the world it's an island nation right so like the main world of lotus is about the size of the state of Washington and Oregon put together, which is about the size of Japan. And so eventually that becomes the mainland and then Marfo becomes the cursed island. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I only mention this because this is them literally making it up as they go along, which I accuse Lucas of this with the Star Wars series. There are other places where I accuse people just making it up as they go along. So it's like, Luke's going to kiss Leah and we later find out their brother and sister and all of that, you know, those kind of things. It's because they were making it up as they go along. This literally because they're playing the Dungeons and Dragons game and transcribing it as they go along. So that's how they're getting their scripts. And this might be a little foreign to fifth edition players, but one of the hallmarks of old school Dungeons and Dragons is even the DM did not know where things were going to go. Like it was an, very much an open world. The players can do whatever they want and uh, a lot less railroading of them down one plot line, you know? So that's kind of plays into this. But we'll start with episode one. So this is called Prologue to the Legend. Immediately, what I liked about this is it felt like Dungeons and Dragons, which even Dungeons and Dragons, the movie, which that won't come out for another decade after this does not feel like Dungeons and Dragons, no. nor did the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon of the early eighties. This more than anything I've ever seen feels like Dungeons and Dragons, the game. And that's because it is, I mean, they're literally writing down their game sessions. Definite D and D feeling the party feels like a classic D and D party. But for me, it was the music. The music in this show is incredible. And 
sort of has that mix of synth harpsichord. So it like felt 80s and also medieval at the same time. And there was a lot of like very Mozart and Brahms inspired types of melodies. And it just felt epic and ancient and like the story was a timeless story of good and evil and the music really enforced that throughout and i don't always play music when i have D going on but i know some of my friends who dm very meticulously plan their playlists for their campaigns and it evoked that feeling very clearly obviously lord of the rings was a huge influence to everybody experiencing D for the first time so you gotta put yourself in the shoes of being in japan when like western style fantasy this stuff that we're all familiar with from lord of the rings and stuff like that is like brand new to them by the way someone recently named trotty i don't know the gender so i'll just refer to them as a them trotty recently translated these original sessions which have been unavailable all these years and they released them to the internet archive in 2021 for the first time in english and trotty says that it reminds them of the first time they played DD playing a hobbit a halfling you know which everybody does like this is the first time you play DD. i'm gonna be bilbo you know mm-hmm. So we have a group of adventurers, Parn, he's the swordsman, Deedlet the elf, Geem the dwarf, Woodchuck the thief, Slain the wizard, and Ito the cleric. And they're about to enter the ruins of a great dwarven hall. Now, the original magazine articles takes them from first to seventh level. And then this begins where that left off. Yeah. If it feels like you don't know what's going on it's because you don't because there were seven articles and they were another level each time a new article came out there's a lot of history that's happened to get us to this point the animation is crude compared to a lot of stuff nowadays anime progressed a ton in its first few decades the artist his full name is Izabuchi, but everyone calls him Bucci because that's how he signs his artwork I'm not fond of how he draws their feet. That's just a personal thing I've got. How about their shoulders? Their proportions are very interesting, even for anime characters. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're definitely exaggerated in a lot of ways. Okay, so the setup here is they have to go through this dwarven hall. We're not sure yet exactly what their mission is. We find out some of the backstory in this first episode because Deedlet and Parn get separated from everybody else and end up in this lower level of the dungeon. And they see a mural and we get a flashback. We find out that King Fawn, who's sometimes also referred to, I think, as the White King in Lotus lore, has tasked them to go talk to the sage Wart about Carla, the Grey Witch Originally, this was just the record of Lotus War. As it became more popular, it got the subtitle, The Grey Witch. Much like Star Wars was originally just Star Wars and then became A New Hope once there were more Star Warses. Also, I think it's worth pointing out that Record of Lotus War is a reference to this being a replay. It's the record of their games. 
we also get Deedlit giving us a background on the mural depicting this epic battle between the gods, which is now part of the intro of every episode. But let's really get to what we all like from this episode, the dragon fight. Yes. At first I was like, first level characters fighting a dragon, but little did I know, because I hadn't read the transcriptions, they're seventh level at this point. Okay, they're about ready to take on a dragon. The dragon fight is the end of their first campaign's arc. The boss battle is the dragon. So we're seeing the end of that. It's almost a prologue to their next quest. And in fact, things will go on for a few more episodes, really almost a half dozen episodes before Lotus really kicks into the new story. You know, one of the things we've been looking at in all of these sword and sorcery films is how magical is the magic. I have to say that Daedlet's summoning of the wind spirits in this episode especially felt very magical. Like, A-plus magic. Okay, I got something to say about Daedlet's magic and Daedlet in general. So one thing that you really notice in the, the light novels version of this is that in Dungeons and Dragons, we often see it as a contest between good and evil. There are, however, two axes of alignments in Dungeons and Dragons, law and chaos, and good and evil. And one thing that Trotty mentions in transcribing it is that the Japanese interpret it much more as the battle between law and chaos. So when we think of elves in most D&D settings, you know, most situations, we think of elves as chaotic. They're like chaotic good. Deedlet's alignment is lawful good. And in general, being lawful is more important than being good in this series. Also, Deedlet, in a lot of ways, represents, in my opinion, Shintoism. The old way of looking at Shinto and Buddhism and stuff like that. The balance of forces. She talks about how there's spirits in everything. Japanese call this kami. And we see it in other things like Princess Mononoke and stuff like that. This is the kind of magic that Deedlet uses. Wind spirits. That kind of magic is very unique to Japanese fantasy. We talked about everything in this being a D&D trope the way we know of it, but it has this Japanese spin on it that's a little bit fresh to us. And one of those things is Deedlet's magic. Let's jump into episode two. You want to take us through the episode called Blazing Departure, Johanna? Sure. In this episode, we get a very bold opening. Orc vision in red as they're chasing what seems to be an innocent damsel. And none of the campaigns I've played, there's been this damsel trope. So I was kind of intrigued by this, actually, of like, oh, what's going on here? Parn happens to be around, eager to save said damsel, and takes on all the orcs. But what's interesting is that in this storyline, killing the orcs has consequences. I'm picturing the DM in this sort of already knowing, like, oh, you're going to kill the orcs to save the damsel, and you have no idea what's coming next. So the rest of the town, once they find out about this, they're very upset with Parn because he's upset the peace. And this is when we get more of Parn's backstory. His father is a disgraced knight and the town people all seem to know it. And they're sort of telling Parn, like, mind your own business. Don't cause any more trouble. You're no good anyway. Your father was a terrible knight. So you're going to be the same. 
And we get a sense of what the stakes are for Parn. He wants to redeem his family name, prove himself, etc. There, of course, then is a follow-up later battle with more orcs who are very angry about this. And we get to see some awesome, like, brewing of the orcs in the mountain as they're, like, waking up, getting ready to cause more trouble. This is when we get to meet Slain. We have an awesome sorcerer versus orcs versus Parn battle scene where it's clear Parn's over his head. He knows some things about the way of the sword, but not fully trained. But Slain comes in and really shows off. And it's in this episode that we're starting to get the sense that we're going to be adding to the party for, for a while, starting with picking up someone who could do some magic. Definitely feel like we haven't gotten the call to adventure yet, but we're starting to get to know who our main characters are going to be. It reminds me a little of when we were watching Conan the Destroyer. Tank brought this up when he was on like the gathering of the group is like, (laughs) it's almost like an 80s trope in and of itself. Yeah. As they go along, they pick up a person in each place. Yeah. Yep. This is where I really started to notice that classical music score Mm -hmm. at the end of this one. It sort of passed me by on the first episode, but the second episode I made a note of it. I'm like, wow, this music is really amazing. I don't know who the composer was. Mitsuo Hagita. And I really half expected that the music was just going to be like this symphony from Mozart and, you know, like this piece from Beethoven. Like I I wasn't expecting it to be uh, composed, but um, and this composer hasn't really done very much else other than a handful of other anime titles, as far as I can tell. So it's amazing work. Yeah, it's amazing work. I'm surprised that this person didn't go on to be a bigger name. Episode three, also known as The Black Knight. I have a couple of little uh, notes here on this episode that don't have to do with the overall plot, but just observations I made. One, this is where I saw the Shinto connection for the first time, because this is the episode where D-Lit mentions that there are fairies inside all living things. If you've seen My, my Neighbor Totoro or you've mm-hmm. seen Princess Mononoke or anything like that, that's that kind of spirituality. Deedlet's magic seems more like religion in a lot of ways than Ito's, and Ito's the cleric. Ito, they call him a monk in the transcriptions and stuff like that, because I think that, you know, Buddhist monks, like that's the closest to a cleric. But also um, the Jesuits had a lot of influence on religion in Japan, too, after contact with the West. So I think of Ito as being sort of a combination between a Jesuit and a a Buddhist monk, and I think of Deedlet as being like a Shinto-type priestess. I also made a note that kobolds as dogmen is a very D&D thing. Mm-hmm. Kobolds appear in a lot of different fantasy fiction, but specifically the concept of them being dog-like is something that comes very much from D&D. And then... Uh, there's a Japaneseism here that I have to throw in that people might not have picked up on. There's a part where they're like going to go back for Woodchuck, who is trapped in the cave in or whatever, and he sneezes. Mm. Anyone who wonders why, why does he just sneeze all of a sudden? There is a Japanese superstition that when someone's talking about you, you sneeze 
because somebody's talking about you. Hmm. And they went, the rest of them had just been talking about Woodchuck. And then it cuts to him sneezing. Hmm. It comes up in anime from time to time. It's one of those things where it's like, if you know the cultural uh, significance here, it, it reveals a little something about the story to you. I'll try to point those out if I see other stuff, but I am by no means an expert on the subtleties of Japanese culture. By the way, we should have said this at the start. We are going to mangle the names. <laughs> the Japanese names will get mangled just like we mangle the English names and the names of every other language whenever we do any piece of fiction set in any other country or created in any other country. We mess up the names. We're going to mess up the names on this one. Don't send in emails correcting our pronunciation because... We know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We also get the Dark Elf in this for the first time. Piratess? Piratess, yeah. She's kind of like the opposite of Deedlet in just about every way possible. <laughs> Let's jump into the next episode, which is called The Grey Witch. The Grey Witch, of course, refers to Carla, the antagonist through this. There is this invasion that's supposed to happen, and King Fawn says the princess, his daughter, Fiana has to go establish a alliance with another nation, Alania. And Carla decides to intercept the princess. And that's what's going on with the intergovernmental politics. We cut to the group and they have to go through a place called the Forest of No Return. <laughs> so, um... Because of course it is. <laughs> Yeah. So they go through it, and of course, they all start hallucinating. Gim, in particular, hallucinates about Lelia, who he was supposed to protect. And uh, Lelia is now the witch, Carla. I'm maybe getting confused with Cardice, is now <laughs> inhabiting her body. And so it's very confusing. Anyway. I think this whole Forced to No Return is a way that they can flash back to more past story that's happened in that first seven levels of progression to tell us what happened before. Because honestly, a lot of their backstory is still being revealed at this point in time. And then the episode ends with the dragon Nars being called out by Vognard, who thinks Cardis is behind all this. It was with this episode that I noticed an animation mistake for the first time. There is a part where it looks like Parn is walking backwards out of the woods. Mm. I think that they just ran that clip in the wrong direction or something. I don't know. <laughs> Again, Deedlet gives them Zen-like advice about leaving their feelings behind when they enter this forest. They should have no passions, which sounds very non-elf-like to, to me. Yes. Like, a lot of what we're used to is elves as chaotic and passionate and all that sort of stuff. Deedlet is a lot more zen-like in her approach to things where she's like, you know, you must give up these earthly passions. You must be like, you know, through this forest or else it'll destroy you, you know? Another aspect that it sort of borrows from some of the things that influenced Dungeons & Dragons Particularly, I'm thinking of the works of Paul Anderson, 
who wrote The Broken Sword and C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. The idea that time is going to pass differently while they're in this other realm. Yeah. Is something that I noted about this. And then Woodchuck has a great line in this. Hey, this guy takes off after everything, doesn't he? Yes. (laughs) Next episode, episode five, is called The Desert King. This episode features another of my favorite things about Dungeons and Dragons, which is feasts. What you want to picture the glory of living in the Middle Ages might have been like with huge trays of piles of meat everywhere and music and, you know, everyone removes their mud-covered clothes in order to put on some finery for the night and intrigue ensues. So here we have the splendor of the feast. Deedlet is looking gorgeous in this white gown with like a pink petticoat underneath. And this is where she engages in what I consider un-elf-like behavior of like really wanting Parn's attention, like really wanting it badly. And I'm just like, this is, this is not what I think of elves. Elves are like so above that in my book. And so I was surprised to see her so upset that Parn only had eyes for King Cashew. Why the hell... Do elves always have to fall in love with a mortal? Like, it's never going to work out. This is always <laughs> going to be a tragic love story, right? This is this is the Aragorn-Arwen thing. Yeah, but that's Aragorn. Like, I mean, nothing against Pard, but... <laughs> and speaking of behavior that is not the way we conceptualize things due to the tropes... In this, Geem has a line where they're talking to him and he's like, Oh, I just, I drank a little too much. Yeah. Said no dwarf ever. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, it happens in this. But anyway, continue. Sorry. Yeah. Deedlet eventually forces him to dance and drags him onto the dance floor. She's like, don't worry, I'll lead. And Parn is still distracted. He, of course, has these ambitions of being a great knight and getting all this glory, and he thinks King Cash is going to be the guy to do that. However, the festivities are interrupted by Carla's evil interference. We have Woodchuck downstairs gambling with some of the prison guards, and he is one of the first to find that one of the prisoners, Naba, has been enchanted by the evil sorceress Carla, the Grey Witch, and he is this huge hulking dude who's going to go on a rampage to kill Cashew and keeps chanting the guy's name in a hilarious way. We get some awesome cutaway to, like, meanwhile, back at the ranch, we've got more bad guys to worry about other than Carla. We have Lord Ashram riding on a horse with, like, a whole band of fighters and whatnot behind him and the most epic dramatic music ever (laughs) just like great great character in introduction of like he's coming and then back to the dance again cashew fighting against naba we have a classic moment of parn rushing in like recklessly wants all the glory his sword we come to see this as a trope throughout the series of He's fighting, 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 and his sword is deflected and flies away and sticks in the ground. And we see this happen again and again, but this is a notable moment because Cashew notices it and figures out that Parn's a little green and needs some training. We have this fight. We get an awesome Maleficent vibe from Carla. 
when she shows up to confront Cashew while he's training Parn after the Naba confrontation. It's kind of interesting. Like, we don't really know what she's about, like, what she wants, because she doesn't show up to kill them exactly. She sort of throws a sword at Cashew, but what she's after or, you know, why she hasn't just all killed them already is kind of unclear to us at this moment, because it seems like she certainly has the power to do so and that their weapons have no effect on her. Kind of an interesting moment. We're starting to get the sense maybe there's something else going on here. And then we get to meet another king, who's the one throwing the party, King Fawn, who is sort of what you think of as a king, a slow, wise, and deliberate leader. And he has this amazing glowing sword. (laughs) And this episode, I think, is the turning point. This is where we feel like we've got most of the party together, and now we have our quest. You know, we had these, like, smaller mini, mini confrontations and things leading up to this, but... Now we have Parn's quest to seek out Wart, another sorcerer who may know what Carla the Grey Witch's intentions are. Because they've all suddenly decided, like, we got to figure out what's going on here because clearly she's got some sort of agenda we don't understand. And maybe once we figure that out, we can defeat her. So Parn is going to go on this quest. And now it feels like the hero's journey is beginning. I have one note that I want to mention, or a question more that I have for you. So we see the prince at one point riding dragons, question mark. <laughs> Are these pterodactyls? Are these dragons? What? What Does this qualify as dragon riding? Can we check that trope off? Yes. No, this is definitely dragon riding. Those were dragons and not pterodactyls. Given how fearsome most of the dragons are in this series... And the things that they're on don't look quite the same. I'm going to call these wyverns, Mm. which are basically your two-legged dragons. You know, the smaller dragons, the rideable kind. The lesser dragons. (laughs) What's the point of Carla appearing to Cashew all the time? Why? Why does she keep making her presence known to Cashew? She sort of has a plan for some of the other characters, but yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Other than he's hot. He's kind of hot. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on to episode six, the sword of the dark emperor. Yeah. I thought of this episode as a like calm before the storm that a lot of folks are circling. Like we're getting ready for an even bigger battle here. Too many unexplained bad guys showing up. That was my thing about this episode. It was like, there's too many unexplained bad guys. I'm like, who is this now? Why are they showing up here now? That was kind of my one beef with this episode. In episode seven, which is called War of Heroes, I wasn't sure if this was a flash forward. Basically, this is where we have the big army battle. I can't remember if they were like an advanced force or they were like a trailing force. I think they were a trailing force behind Cashew's army. Yeah, we've got a series of pretty serious fights here. We've got Deedless versus the hot dark elf Pyridus and... Oh, so it's not just me that thinks that Pyridus is the hot one. I mean, have you seen what she's wearing? <laughs> <laughs> well, um... also she's she's more busty and more figured the oh yeah she's deed lit is very it's a whole if you got it flaunted situation with pyridus 
Ibuchi, Izabuchi created her to give the animator another female character and one that was hot. So it would be more entertaining for the guy that was doing the layouts and stuff like that. That's the whole reason Pyridis was created. Yes. Side note, I'm actually really happy with the female characters in this show generally. Like, we've got a lot of powerful female characters who are not sex symbols, so it's totally fine that we're allowed to have, like, one femme fatale hot elf. This is the episode where Wart finally helps them out. They finally get some information about how they're supposed to go about defeating Carla, and that Wart tells them that her true form is trapped inside the jewels in her forehead. So we finally got a clue about what's going on and then go into a series of battle scenes and other epic things that are happening. Episode seven is a pretty important point in the story. We have this amazing sword fight between King Fawn and Beld. Just going back to the point of like too many bad guys. <laughs> we never really find out like what Beld's deal is or like enough to care about him beyond the fact that he's clearly a scary dude. But we have an amazing sword fight in which both guys stab each other simultaneously, but Beld clearly stabs King Fawn just a little bit more. Fawn is dead. And then Carla throws a spear from the sky and then electrocutes Beld. <laughs> It's bad enough that she <laughs> impales him, but then she has to like electrocute him on top of it. They want to make sure that Belt is like dead, 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 dead. And and this is when everyone is really confused. They're like, okay, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. Whose side is she on anyway? I thought she was on the bad guy's side. It's like, nope, she's on her own side. <laughs> so we we're left with that mystery and then cut away to Wagnard again who's watching from a distance evilly. And we have the birth of five dragons. Five dragons rise, yeah. Five dragons rise. The animation on that is so cool. Like sparkling things falling down and then the dragon emerges. Uh, so totally epic ending to episode seven. Ashram takes Beld's evil sword. Another glowing sword, but this one, the evil sword. <laughs> And Parn mourns the fallen King Fawn. Yeah, the, the good versus evil is really symbolized by Fawn and Ashram sword, formerly Beld's sword. But I still didn't know in this, who exactly is Wart? Well, Wart is apparently the sage that, you know, has a whole backstory too. But I want to say the animation on this particular episode was really good. Mm -hmm. Things down to just like... When they're on the battlefield, the shadows from the clouds and stuff like that. Yeah. The attention to detail for the animation for this episode was way better than a lot of the previous episodes. This was a you know, fantastic one. We just did seven. So now we're on to Requiem for Warriors. After mistaking Deedlip uh, for a Marmo Dark Elf, out-of-work mercenaries, Shiris and Orson attack Parn. So Shiris is the one that I said reminded me a little of Lena Inverse from Slayers. We'll talk more about Shiris and Orson as we go, because they kind of become like an adjunct to the team here. I like their relationship a lot. You know, it wasn't necessarily a romantic 
relationship, but a very deep, close friendship. And they kind of looked out for each other. And, and I always appreciate that because, you know, oftentimes when a woman is involved in so many genres, it's just automatically like, oh, it's a romantic relationship. Let's just assume that. And it doesn't look like that here. Orson shows himself to be a berserker. Which is a thing in D&D. So originally, I think it was inspired by the berserker fury of like Vikings and stuff like that. Eventually, it becomes folded into the idea of the um, barbarian character class. But in D&D, it's actually a thing. Like you can encounter a berserker. It's more its own uh, quote unquote monster in a way. And Sharon's tries to calm Orson down. One thing that, that I remember that she said is this poor tortured soul is my friend. That just kind of, oof, oof, that hurt my heart, you know? That hurt my heart seeing that. I like how they keep reappearing throughout the series. Let's talk about Gim. Gim is getting more anxious about freeing Lelia from Carla. And he travels to Carla and implores her to, you know, leave Lelia but she refuses and attacks him as the rest of the group arrive. Carla does show part that she prevents power over Lotus from being under the control in just one place and that a war prevents total destruction of Lotus. The circlet, which is the thing Carla was wearing on her head. Spoiler alert. The circlet was the Grey Witch. The circlet was was basically the plug-in. <laughs> Causing Lelia to, to... To be an evil witch that's 500 years old. Yeah, Gim was able to remove it, but it cost him his life. And we later find out that Carla just possessed Woodchuck instead. Man, that was a good episode. I hated seeing Gim pass away. And Ote gives the big... No! <laughs> and I like how they honored him in the show. Even later on in the show, they honored him too. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny with um, just sort of imagining this as a game that was once played and then recorded and written down. Just sort of picturing, uh, you know, like every character has to roll like a wisdom check or something otherwise you get possessed and woodchuck loses woodchuck rolls rolls a five or whatever and, and he's he's the unlucky one who has to has to go through the rest of the game as a gray witch but um it's it was it was a cool move and good that we sort of get a sense now of carla's game here of trying to maintain the balance now, I can't remember if she said this in episode seven or episode eight, but I do remember Carla saying Lotus will be neither unified nor conquered. And she said that a couple of times. And I've noticed that whenever a line is said like twice, it's significant in this show. Mm -hmm. Episode nine, the scepter of domination. The character of Ashram is now in control of Marmo, and he is deciding that he's going to raise Cardius. And in order to do that, he needs a sacrifice. He needs a high elf. Oh. <laughs> There's only one high elf we know of. So the dark elf, Pyrrhotest, says that she'll go capture Deedlet to be that sacrifice. Meanwhile, Ashram, not only does he have the demon sword, 
which allows him to control Marmo. He wants what this episode is titled after, the Scepter of Domination, which is a scepter which will let him control the land, including red dragons. Now, where have we heard this before? <laughs> Remember the Rod of Serville? Keep in mind, this comes out a decade before that. Oh, yeah. And and Vagnar definitely has a pretty serious Jeremy Irons vibe going on in this. <laughs> Pyridus tries to kidnap D-Lit, but Shiris and Orson intervene. And, like, I think this is the one where she's tied to a tree and, like, at the last minute, the mercenaries come to their aid. Yep. Also, Shooting Star, the fire dragon, rises And we'll find out more about Shooting Star and what he ends up doing in the upcoming episode. Because the next episode's a big deal. It's the Demon Dragon of Fire Dragon Mountain. And that dragon is, of course, Shooting Star. So let's talk about episode 10. We start the series with a dragon encounter, but this takes dragons to a whole new level. Shooting Star is not going to be as easily defeated as the dragon in episode 1. They determine that the only way they're going to defeat Shooting Star is with the three lances of Marie, the god of war. I don't know. I can't remember how to pronounce the, this name, but um, Miri. What is it? Miri, I think, uh, is. Okay. Yeah. Um, who? Well, this is the first time we're finding out about this god of war, but whatever. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're forging these lances as we speak, uh, we find out. And this this is a moment where... Parn very eagerly says, oh, can I come too? And he's given permission to come along by Cashew, but on the condition that he does exactly what he says. No more reckless rushing into everything. We'll see whether he ends up being able to comply or not. But (laughs) so they are going to fight this dragon before it can be used basically as a weapon against other people. And the dragon's already causing trouble to the local town. Meanwhile, Ashram is also going to the mountain to get the scepter. So we have kind of a convergence of forces. We have the dragon who seems to be influenced by the scepter, but definitely just barely. You get the sense that the scepter of domination manages to protect whoever's holding it and that they have some control over the dragon, but it's unclear exactly how much Dragon's still pretty scary, even to Ashram as he's holding the scepter. And a fight breaks out between Ashram's party and Parn and their group, where we actually get a, like kind of a sweet heroic moment for Ashram when Piratus, who's coming to try to protect Ashram, afraid that Shooting Star is not going to be held off very long by the scepter, she comes to save him. She then falls. He rescues her. He drops the scepter in order to rescue Peritus. Then the scepter is picked up by Vagnard. We sort of end this episode with like, this is all bad news (laughs) for everybody. However, turns out that these three lances get the job done as it was foretold. And Parn and... Orson and Cashew are all able to drive their lances home and defeat Shooting Star in a truly epic fashion. It's a dragon to rival Smog in my book. Pretty serious, scary red dragon. And the stakes feel pretty high in this episode, especially knowing 
we're accelerating into a series of final battles. Now that the super bad guy has the scepter of domination, it's all downhill from here for our heroes. This is the episode where Deedlet says a life is a life. So this is something that's very much in the Buddhist tradition where all lives are equal, whether they're human or like a fly. Mm -hmm. This is Deedlet's approach to the universe in some ways. There's something odd about the translation of the title of this episode, the demon dragon of fire dragon mountain. There's just too many dragons. in that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to episode 11, the wizard's ambition. Okay. So we have a developing love triangle here between Parn, Deedlet and Shiris. Like, does he just not get that Shiris likes him? He seems pretty clueless when it comes to women, period, the end. Meanwhile, King Cashew learns that Marmo is starting to rise in power in the region. Deedlet believes that someone has the scepter of domination. That is, in fact, Vognard, who is on the island of Marmo and plans to raise Cardis, who is entombed beneath it. To do that, he needs to kidnap a high elf. So Vognard attacks Deedlet. Parn tries to defend her, but his sword breaks. And when he comes to, Orson and Shiris are over him and they agree to take the message to Moss so that. Parn can go rescue Deedlet. Ito gives Parn the holy sword of King Fawn, and then Slain, Lelia, and Ito, they go with him to Marmo, where Vognard is preparing to raise Cardis. Meanwhile, Ashram leading Kashru's army is also heading to Marmo. Yeah, this is the episode where he's injured and he still pushes forward, <laughs> as all good heroes do, <laughs> setting up for an epic battle. Episode 12 is called The Final Battle. As they're traveling to the final battle, Cashew's people go by sea and they're attacked by a giant sea serpent, which I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Like, at some point, the sea serpent's completely encircling their ship, and how they managed to have, like, a working ship after that, I don't know. Vognard, you know, he's got this ritual that's going to raise Cardis. He has Deedlet now, because they actually did capture her this time, and she's going to be the sacrifice. We, again, we have the prince and his men riding in on wyverns. And if that's not enough dragonage for you, we have Nars. The uh, black dragon, I guess. <laughs> Whenever we have a dragon, like the, the bad guys raise a dragon, the best way to fight it is with another dragon. So, of course, it's a gold dragon. I feel like gold dragons versus red dragons or gold dragons versus black dragons is a thing. You know, it's just like a triceratops versus tyrannosaurus or like giant squid versus sperm whale it's like a it's it's a thing you know and so of course we have the dragon versus dragon battle in this you know parn has to go save deedlet actually ends up with him not being the one that saves her 
which I thought was really interesting. It's Ashram who attacks Wagner. He splits him down with the sword and stuff like that. And while that doesn't kill Wagner, being split in half by a sword, it is enough to interrupt the ritual to question mark save Deedlet. I'm not sure. We'll have to find out in the next episode. Okay, Rosie, there was a monster you wanted to point out in this episode. We have another worm. <laughs> we have another worm in this episode. Another sandworm? <laughs> yes. Yeah, this was more like a slime worm. Like, you weren't supposed to touch the slime because it could kill you. But, yeah, it was like a slime worm with tentacles. <laughs> There's this battle between Ashram and Vognard going on. But Deedlet is sinking down and there's like swirls going around and it feels like her life energy is being drained. Well, and it's in this moment when her life is on the line and Parn as the heroic hero rescuing her suddenly makes the intro animation and song make sense and the end credits song, like all the romantic garbage that has been around it that was just like, how does this fit into what's going on now? Suddenly it's like, oh, oh, this whole story is about these two. <laughs> so it was the exit song that kind of reminds me of that song, Almost Paradise, that was on Footloose by Mike Reno and Ann Wilson. Do you guys remember that song? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I know. Same. But I'm just saying, like, if you were to do a mashup song, you could easily mash those two songs up together. And every time I heard the theme song, I was just like, almost You know, I think I did. I think I, I picked up on that as well. I have some vague recollection of that. I didn't write it in my notes, but there's a battle inside and a battle outside. Outside, we got Cashew's men and they're fighting hordes of monsters. Inside, we got a three-way battle, really, between Vognard, Ashram, and... Parn and like every time one defeats one, like the third one comes back. Like that was the thing that I noticed about this is like, oh, okay, finally we have a victor. And then suddenly, like Vognard will reach up and grab Ashram, you know, and then suddenly they're back to fighting each other. Eventually, Parn does emerge victorious thanks to the use of the holy sword of King Fawn. Well, both swords. Yeah. I mean, I actually thought that this was kind of cool. Is like, after all of this, he needs both the good sword and the evil sword together in order to win. I was like, cool twist. It's kind of like Masters of the Universe that way, where yes. Skeletor has one half of the sword and like uh, He-Man has the other and they need, eventually you need both of them. And this is the overall theme in this because, you know, not to skip to the end, but let's skip to the end. Um, the very last like thing they say in this whole show is that light and darkness are equal. That where one exists, so too must the other. Because this is where we find out that Carla's goal here is actually to keep Lodos in balance. She only fights on the side of evil to keep good from getting too powerful. She would also back the good side if the evil side got too powerful. That's what we learn kind of gets lost in translation but the idea is everything needs to be kept in balance again we have this eastern philosophy going on here this yin yang where there there needs to be an equal part of light to darkness to keep everything in balance and that's where we get this whole idea that the law and chaos 
is more important than the good and evil when it comes to this series. Law is everything stays in balance. Chaos is stuff's out of balance. So by law, by the natural way things should be, good and evil need to be maintained in a balance. And, and Wagner kind of steals the deal in a way, because, you know, if you if you have the scepter, you control Lotos. Well, he, in his last act, destroyed it. So nobody can control Lotos, which I'm sure pleased the Grey Witch. I just find it interesting that the Grey Witch decided to step back and watch chaos happen instead of getting involved this time in a new body. Yeah. For the series overall, I I liked the sense of being invited into a larger world for an adventure, but sort of one where I felt like I was discovering what was going on and what the rules were along with the characters. And that was actually kind of a cool experience, even though sometimes it was a little confusing. The animation has been better in, in later anime, but I actually thought it was compelling enough and the music was so fantastic that I really felt the sense of epic scale and the larger good versus evil conflict didn't feel silly. It felt like, you know, magical. So do you see why, like, the young me saw this as the best representation of D&D on film? At the time, we we're talking, you know, decades ago now, but there's been a lot since. And I'd say even to this day, it's kind of in the running, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think I've started watching the new Willow TV series, which isn't like, I don't know exactly if it's sword and sorcery, but it feels like it's pretty close. Um, and I feel like there's something there, but this did feel... This has felt the most like what playing D&D feels like. This series is hugely popular. It went on to affect fantasy in general in Japan for decades. We're still feeling it. As I said, released on Steam in 2021 was Deedlit in Wonder Labyrinth, where you play Deedlit. You have to make your way through the labyrinth. Deedlit is, of course, one of the uh, breakout characters. She gets her own series at some point. There is a sequel to this called The Chronicles of the Heroic Knight, which is the adult Parn, which is generally considered the better series. So maybe we'll go do that at some time. There's also Legend of Christiana, which takes place in the same world with different characters. And that, I think, has sequels as well. I have mentioned before that this time at the end of the 80s and most of the 90s, TSR the company that put out Dungeons and Dragons was being headed by Lorraine Williams. It's often considered the worst era for D&D. &D, and we've talked about some of her mistakes going along. This is another one. They offered this to Dungeons and Dragons. This could have been an official Dungeons and Dragons property. And Lorraine Williams, presumably, definitely TSR in general, passed on it. They didn't think it was uh, it was going to be profitable. And in order to avoid copyright issues and stuff like that, they had to be their own thing. So they created Sword World, mm -hmm. this Japanese tabletop role-playing game. And that would eventually eclipse Dungeons & Dragons in Japan as the number one role-playing game. Hmm. 
And we're seeing stuff come around again, like recently with proposed changes to the open gaming license and stuff like that with 5th edition. Critical Role has sort of divorced itself from D&D now, and they've released their own role-playing game. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, Dungeons & Dragons can be its worst enemy. I want to let everybody know that what would really help us is if you went to your platform that you get this on, whether that be Apple, iTunes, or uh, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you're at, and leave us a review. Not just a star rating. Give us a good five-star rating if you think we're we're worth it. (laughs) Even if you don't give us a five-star review anyway, just because you're nice. (laughs) Give us a review because that will help us get seen. uh, And hopefully other people who are looking for something like this podcast will be able to find it. Okay, with that said, I want to say that if you want to contact us, you can at GC8podcast, that's letter G, letter C, number 8, podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. This is Rosie. (laughs) Signing off. It was very inappropriate and very adult, and I suddenly became quite worried for my soul and sanity.